Well, we said together as a baptism class the other day, we started to do baptism classes, getting ready for the back end of the month, and we said a few things that the Bible isn't. Okay? The Bible isn't a book of heroes. Why do I say that? Because some people think that your Bible's all about the best of us. The people who are big, the people who are strong, the people who've got a name for themselves. And what we do is we go and we read the Bible, we look at them and say, right, go and copy them. Now there are some heroes in the Bible, but even the greatest heroes, by the Lord Jesus, are terribly fallen and broken. In fact, some of the heroes of the faith, they really ruin people's lives. They spread, spread damage and wreck everywhere. So although the Bible has got heroes in it, it's not a book of heroes, and it's not a book of examples to follow per se. It's much bigger than that. Also, some people think that the Bible is a book of rules, and we've heard that God does give rules, and there are rules in God's Word, the Bible. But it's not a book of rules whereby you follow this, and you'll get in with God, and you'll stay in with God. It doesn't work like that. I think that's actually what people want it to be. A set of rules, a series of good advice, follow this line, this advice, and you will get what you want out of life. Now there's loads of wisdom, and there is loads of good guidance in there, but fundamentally, the Bible isn't a book of rules. And what about this one? Some people think that the, uh, the Bible is a book for experts. People who perhaps know all the original Greek and Hebrew language. People who have had loads and loads of hours to be able to study and pour over it. So in the Middle Ages, in fact, if you went to a church in the Middle Ages in Europe, it would only ever be read in Latin. And most of the people didn't speak Latin. So the idea that they got was that the Bible was for sort of like the really spiritually keen, like a priesthood or something like that, but not for everybody. And so you had to be elite, an insider, if you were to understand the message of the Bible. Now, can I tell you this? Please believe me when I say this. If you can read the newspaper, you can read the Bible. And it is for everybody. Now, all of those myths would be bad news. The first one would be a myth, because none of us can be a, uh, would be bad news for us, because if the Bible's a book saying, be a hero, hero, then any of you who know me just a little bit know that I'm quite the opposite. And so are you. If the Bible was a book telling you about rules and keeping all the rules, that would be terribly bad news because anybody who knows me at all knows that I've fallen and even those Ten Commandments we were learning about with the kids a little while ago, I've even broken the first one before I got up this morning. That would be bad news if God says keep the rules. Be an expert, well, as much as I've got to know the Bible, I feel like I'm finding my way around it now and I know what God says in different places. There is so much I don't know. The more I look into the Bible, the more I realise that I can't know, so I can never be an insider enough. And it would be bad news if I was being asked to be. Now, the Bible is actually good news because the Bible isn't a book of rules or a set of things uh, to copy in a hero or it's not... Uh, so you have to be an expert to, be able to get the message of the Bible. The Bible is good news because it is all about God. It's all about what He does. In fact, let's flip forward. We can see that first verse. Uh, you don't need to turn it up. It's there for you. The Bible is good news. Jesus said the Pharisees, who were people who tried to be heroes, keep all the rules, and be experts. They came to him one day and they hadn't got a clue. They saw him um, healing a man born blind and they came to him and, Who are you? Why, why, why is everything happening around you? And you'd have thought if there was anybody who would have clicked on to who Jesus was, it would have been the Pharisees because they were heroes, rule, um, good at keeping the rules and they were expert, ex, experts. But what is it that Jesus says to them? 
Listen, you Pharisees, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess, possess eternal life. You get eternal life by being a hero, keeping the rules and being experts. But these are the scriptures that testify about me, says Jesus. Yet you refuse to come to me and to have life. You see, this book is about Jesus Christ about knowing God, about trusting him, how God gloriously saves people into his eternal kingdom through Jesus Christ. That's what it is. It's a rescue story. And if you can read the newspaper, you can read this. And by the end of this ten weeks, I just want you to say, yes, I can read my Bible. I don't need to be scared by it. In fact, it should just suck you in so you just want to read and know it more and more. I was talking to one of you this week, and you were talking about how you've just... You got up, you've been reading your Bible and you can't keep away from it and it's making you late for work because you're meeting God as you read the Bible. And so we're calling it the greatest story ever told. And I've said it twice already, but I'll say it again. The big theme, I think this sentence is reasonably right. John, shake your head if you think I've got it out of kilter or is not an even-handed evaluation. But I think that the story in the centre of the message is of the Bible is how God gloriously saves people into his eternal kingdom through Jesus Christ. What do you reckon, John? Do you reckon I'm quite close to the nail on that one? you let me have that. Oh, bless you. You're good to me. Okay, good. It's a story about God rescuing people into his eternal kingdom. Turn over your page and you'll see. Now, you'll find in the Old Testament... The word kingdom isn't used that much. It talks about the kingdoms of the world and that kind of thing. But as soon as Jesus steps into his public ministry in Mark chapter 1, he immediately talks about God's plan of building a kingdom. And as you track back through the Old Testament of the Bible, you see what Jesus was talking about. This is what Jesus said. After John was put in prison, that's John the Baptist, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. What is it? Tidy up. Be good. Be an expert. Look at them heroes. No. This is the message, the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So that's the message of the Bible. That when Jesus is here, God's reigning eternal kingdom is here and you need to respond as quick as you can. So we're going to go back through the Bible and trace the themes of his kingdom. We see here that in his kingdom, really, it's made up of three things. And some of you will know this and be familiar with it. But in in, in his kingdom, there's basically God's people in God's place sharing out God's blessing and rule to the nations. Do you see that? God's kingdom is made up of God's people in God's place sharing out God's blessing and rule. So every week we'll look at, as we move through the Bible, what's growing and developing about God's kingdom. Because what happens is it starts small like this and it just gets bigger and bigger and we learn more things about it. And, then it goes. and so what we're going to do is trace through the whole Bible how God's kingdom works. You see that? Now the next one I'm particularly pleased with, because I haven't found many Bible overviews that pull this together, but every week as well what we'll be doing is we'll be tracing through his kingdom style. What is the way that God rolls? How is the way that God rolls? What is the way he does stuff? What is his style? And we're going to find as we move through the Bible that his kingdom of God's people and God's place and God's blessing moves forward. But as he does, it always it follows a certain pattern. It follows certain, he always does things and works in the same way. 
and we're going to see that he works as the sovereign God, as the wise God, as the glorious God, and as the gracious God. And we'll follow those four things all the way through the Bible. And then every week as we go through this Bible overview, we're also going to see our life of faith. Because did you notice there in Mark chapter 1, it wasn't just that Jesus proclaimed the kingdom and announced that it was here. He said, actually, you need to respond. And the response to the kingdom is repent and believe the good news, or we'll sum it up by the phrase, our life of faith, how we respond to God. You can't just hear about his kingdom and pretend it's not there. Because to do that is to become an enemy of the king. And so we're going to have a little look at this now. I ought to tell you this, and this is for those of you who, uh, you know, you're a bit more familiar with the Bible. Think of the Bible as like a 3D statue, okay? And what we're doing as we do a Bible overview is we're going up to it with a camera and taking a snapshot. You understand? The problem is, is that the picture that comes out of the camera is only 2D, isn't it? So depending, you know, so if I go up to Linda... um, I want to take a 2D snap of Linda that gives the best representation of the 3D thing. So if I go up to Linda like this, it's going to represent Linda, but is it going to give a good representation of the whole thing? No, I probably want to take a snap straight on that shows as fully as possible. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because there's lots of different ways to do a Bible overview, none of which are, are wrong, but we want to try and do a Bible overview that, that, that shows the big picture, that, that gives you a flow, that, that tries to represent as much of the whole as possible. So some people do this by breaking up the covenants. Some of you are like, you are, don't worry if you don't know what that is, that's fine. Some of them do it by following the, the track of the seed through the Bible. Yeah, that's great, and that's fine as well. But I'm trying to give you one that will give you mile markers and posts along the way so that anybody can pick up their Bible and say, I know where we're up to, I know what God has done, and I know what he's about to do. Isn't this exciting? Okay, so we're happy with that. So with that in mind, look down at your little drawer in there. Can you see it? And then with one hand, look at the, well, with one eye, look at the little drawing, and with the other eye, look at the other, other timeline I've given you. And you'll see the difference. So the colourful thing is tracking the pattern of the kingdom, where the kingdom goes. So to start off with, everything's great, high up in the Garden of Eden, Eden it's perfect. Then people turn against God and things drop down to an all-time low. And then God starts to rebuild in the nation of Israel. Up to the star, you see where the king, the star of David is there, and everything's building as if it should do. And then people turn away from God again and things drop down low and the kingdom splits into two. And then we're a few hundred years away, and the prophets speak a promise that one day one will come who will restore everything to get us back where we started. And that happens when Jesus comes and at his cross. And then there's the last days, which is off the scale there. We'll talk about that at the time we're in at the moment. And it all ends in the new creation. So you see that, that's following how the movements of the kingdom, and that's where we're going to go. But on your other one, you see, with the, that's just a straight timeline that I've given you on the piece of paper. And that tells you all the dates, and it tells you where the books of the Bible fit in. Okay? So there's two ways of, if you like, summarising the track of the Bible. One is just in time, and with what's actually happening. And you can look and you can find out on that timeline, find out, well, where's the book of Exodus? Aha, it's near the start. What's going on in the middle? What's, what's that exile thing about? We'll find, we'll come to that in a bit. But we're tracking what's happening 
as well, we're tracking what's happening with God's kingdom. How are people responding to God and trusting him? Okay? Now more of that will become clear. I've spent ten minutes just giving you an introduction, and that's two sheets of the paper. But if you think that means I'm going to take 20 minutes altogether, oh no. No, the rest will take us about 20, 20, 25 minutes. Okay, we'll work through this reasonably quickly. So, part one. The pattern of the kingdom. This is God's people in God's place under or sharing out God's blessing and rule. So if you've got your Bibles, you want to be back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So this, we're starting at the very beginning. Where's my bit of paper gone? Here we go. Okay. So God's kingdom is God's people in God's place sharing out his blessing and rule. So let's have a little look to start off with at creation. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now you can't see the magnificence of this in the English but just the poetic nature of that first chapter of Genesis, you're supposed to just stand back and go, whoa, in the beginning, God. Those four words, that that tells you exactly what life's about, doesn't it? Life here on planet Earth, in this universe, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. Now you need to just stop and let that wash over you. Because we are not the centre of the universe. Who is? It's not a trick question. It's God. Thank you, Angie. It's God. God is at the centre. He is the one who creates. We are created. He is uncreated. He's the uncreated one. He's eternal. There has never been a time when the three-in-one God was not. He has always been. Now that will wreck your head if you think about it too long. But he existed before anything else came into being. And it's hard for us because everything else we ever bump into, meet and think about, had a beginning and had an end. But not God. Psalm 90 verse 2 says this, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and and world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's uncreated, whereas we are created. He's outside creation. And he takes the initiative. He starts it all off. I didn't have to go up to God, pull on his coattails and say, Will you make everything? No, he did it. He did it and made it happen. And he did it from the outside. And what does that mean for you and me? This is so important, isn't it? It means everything is his. All stuff you stand on or bump into or breathe. Your life is his property. All truth, anything, anywhere that is true, it's not that we come up with it, it belongs to God and we borrow it off him. Our past, our present, our future, he owns time. And he controls time. Now can I ask you, is your God that big? Yes, he is. Have you realised how massive he is? Now why is this important? It means that he is separate to this world and he's not part of it. He's outside of it. So some people say, that, well, if you just get in touch with nature, you'll be in touch with God. No, he's outside of nature. He rules it, and some of nature gives you a fingerprint of what he might be like, but no, he's not within the world. 
You know, some people don't want to harm an ant, because within the ant is God. No, not really. No, he's separate to the world. And it also is important to us, because it says that if he is outside the world and has created this world, if we start worshipping anything within this world, we've sold ourselves short, and we've sold him short. Because he is bigger and better than anything outside the world. To worship anything created in creation as if it were him, is to insult him. Now, think for a second. If you were to go down to the Tate Gallery down in Liverpool city centre, and you'd have a little look at some artwork that was painted, you'd be able to, say, to, be able to tell something about the artist. It's almost as if something is written into the paint that just gives you an indication as to what the artist is like. And that's exactly the same here. We can see him in his handiwork in creation. So if we go back to you know, Genesis chapter 1, we only scan down it, there's the six first days of creation, and it follows a set pattern. And God said, let there be such and such, you know, light, something like that. And I love this because, and it says, and it was so. In other words, when God speaks, it happens. It doesn't have to form a committee. It just happens. And God said, let there be, and it was so, and God saw that it was good, God called it, and then there was evening, and there was morning, the such and such day. Do you get that? So it's very regular and orderly. It's beautiful. Apparently the Hebrew, which I can't read, is just magisterial. It's awesome. It's a picture of beauty. And you notice the order there, can you see? So the days one, two, three, is talking about how God formed out of nothing. Now whenever I made a model out of plasticine in the kids, uh, as a kid, I'd go, look! Mummy and Daddy, look what I made. No, I didn't make it. What I did was I formed it out of stuff that was already there. When God made, he just made it out of nothing. He didn't get plasticine up for all to turn a Rubik's Cube. No. There was nothing there, and he just spoke and whoosh! Off it popped. So in the first three days, he formed out of nothing. So what did he do on day one? Somebody shouted out, what did he make on day one? Light, day two. You pick the easy one. Somebody else, please. Day two. Water and... Expanse or... Sky. For us on text language. Much shorter than expanse. But. So he's made light, water and sky. Day three. The dry land and... This is the bit I'm not that keen on. Vegetables. Or vegetation, more strictly. Yeah? Now that's what he created out of nothing. Then day four... He fills it. So on day four, he fills the light, as in he makes the light, he makes the, all of that, and he fills it with lights. So that's like the stars and the moon and all that kind of stuff from that point of view. On day two, there's the water and sky, but on day five, he fills it with fish and birds. Good. Somebody else for day six. What did he make on day six? If he's made the grounds and the vegetation, i.e. the land, the place to live, what does he make to go in it? Animals and people, and they're very separate in this bit of the Bible. Very important. What are we supposed to see here? Well, again and again, God looked and saw that it was good. In fact, in a little while, he's going to say and look and say it was very good. It was perfect. There was nothing wanted. In chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, I'll read it because we haven't had it read to us yet. Uh, it says this, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. 
And the Lord God made all the kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food in the middle of the garden. Sorry, in the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He makes a place of beauty that is pleasing to the eye. He makes a place of provision. So there's plenty of food. They lack nothing. They never have a bad night's sleep or get up with back pain. Their provision is there to be reliant and dependent on God every day. But he says, don't worry, I'll make sure you've always got what you need. The tree of life, and we're not quite sure how, how this works, but in some sense the tree of life ensures that humanity can enjoy health and life. This is God's place. And it's brilliant. In fact, the word Eden means delight. It's the sort of thing that makes you salivate, you're sort of licking your lips, just being there. It's wonderful. It's a picture of beauty, abundance, delight. It's the opposite of ruin and desert and wilderness. It's joy, gladness, richness, thanksgiving and singing from the moment you wake up to the moment you finish. It makes Buckingham Palace look like a slum. It's God's place. But also we learn, secondly, we learn about God's people. We learn about God's people. Now there are four things that we need to learn about God's people here as he makes them. You can see that's found mainly in Genesis. I'll read Genesis 26 through to 31 just so you've got the idea here. That will start at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. Hold on. Uh, Now I'll check back to the beginning of 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant, and so on. I think there's four things in these early chapters that actually get fleshed out a bit more through the Bible that tell us about who people are, God's people. Are you ready? The first one is that they are imagers. Not imaginers, imagers. Here you see in verse 26 the hint of the Trinity where God says to himself, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So in some sense, mankind is separate from the animals because we are to image forth something of who God is. In other words, we're to be a chip off the old block. You know, we have that little phrase now, little mini-me's, like our... My daughter's about to said to me again, Oh, don't all your kids look the same as you? They're not just looks. Oh, this isn't about looks. It's more like this. We image God in that we do and act in the way that he would. Do you get that? We have a similar heart and a similar intention. So he's creative, we're creative. He's ordered, we're ordered. He's gracious, we're gracious. He's loving. He gives the power to them to bless others, to go forth and multiply and and send blessing out beyond. And he says, you go and be like me. In that sense, you are to image me. He empowers them. He gives them a job to do and says, that go and do it the way I would and I'll be with you as you try to do it. And it was an unbroken image. You notice towards the end of chapter 2, you see that they're naked together and they felt no shame. Whereas at verse 25 of chapter 2, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There was an unbroken innocence. They had nothing to hide. And being covered up speaks of having things to hide. 
their image was that they were at ease and in the right place with God. It wasn't that they were naked and happy because they were the closest thing that we have to Brad and Angelina. No, it was just because they were... Everything was out in the open. They were the image of God as they were made to be. Now, how many people do you know who have got self-image problems? How many of us in here have got self-image problems? We want to cover ourselves up. Thank you, Weston. At least you're honest, matey. I think you've got a self-image problem as well. That's fine. We're always hiding. We're always into image management, aren't we? There are some people who are out there. They're just like, who am I? You've got teenagers who are just totally screwed up. They just don't know who they're supposed to be. And so they'll say, well, I'll wear this kind of clothes, or I'll wear that kind of clothes, or I'll go to this place. Or we'll define ourselves and give ourselves an identity and an image by the places that we've lived, or the people that we've bumped into, or the, the things, the struggles that we've had. And it's all because we're trying to cling and reach out to this fact that we are supposed to be imagers. We are supposed to be made in the image of God, and when that gets left out, everything starts to fall apart. We're trying to be all kinds of things when actually we're forgetting that we were made to image God with his help. We want to design our own image or conform to the image that others expect us to have. And God says, no, you're the high point of my creation, you're to image me. But we all sense something's gone wrong, don't we? Come back next week to find out about that. Images, slightly quicker, we're worshippers. And worship is all about how you relate to God. We are built to worship, to desire, to look at something and go, wow! And sometimes it's gone so wrong that we're satisfied with just looking at a nice new shiny car and going, wow! Saying, if I get that, then I'm happy. Now, to be a worshipper is actually to decide what you're going to say is God, what can meet your needs and what can provide for you. And in here, God's people, when they first came, they, they were related to God. And they were dependent on him and when they got up in the morning they were like wow this place is awesome imagine how good God must be and it rolls over into praise of him now I tell you about my bed almost every week because my bed is my happy place because it's so comfortable I just this is bliss every night I can't forget about God every night I have to say Lord thank you that you've given me this level of comfort and is that the way it's supposed to be? yes Because I don't worship the bed, I worship the God who gave it me. Do you get that? And we're going to see all the way through the Bible that worship goes wrong, it gets messed up. You know, our problem is is that sometimes what we do is we treat God like my kids treat their Christmas presents. The first one is suddenly top of the list until they see the next one, and then that becomes the favourite. That's never the way it was supposed to be. We're supposed to keep God at the top of the list and say, you are everything I need and I will build my life on you. Do you see? We're supposed to be worshippers. Next one, even quicker. Believers. Believers is that we're trying to make sense and understand our world. Have you noticed how everybody, from whatever age they start, we're all trying to make sense of life? So, what's the favourite phrase of a, like a two to four year old? Yeah, I suppose. It's not fair. It's usually, why? Yeah? Why? Why? And then we get a little bit older and we find ourselves in an awkward situation and we spend hours wrecking our head trying to make sense of it. And then if we're really desperate, we go to Cosmopolitan magazine to try and explain to us why we're feeling the way we're feeling and why this is happening to us. And it's absolutely no help whatsoever. Why? Because we are... (sighs) 
Well, not wise, Cosmo, I've going to that for a long time. But why is it we're always looking for an interpretation, something to help us make sense of life? Answer, because we were made by God to get his answers. So in here, what do we find? He speaks to them, and he tells them who they are, and what they're to do, and who he is, and how to relate to him. Uh, we haven't got time to quote the verse, but if you go there, he just talks to them, and he tells this is what life's about, makes sense. And if you cut God out of that, and you try to make sense yourself, or listen to your neighbour, or listen to Cosmo, you're going to be in a mess. Because we were made as people who believe things. And if we listen to a voice, we should go to his voice first, but so often we go to his voice last. We're believers. Finally, we're relators. I love this. You've got your little picture there. You see the little picture? Oh. They're a community. You see that? God t- tells them to be a community. He makes a man and woman equal, totally equal, but different. And we'll look at that next week a bit. But they're a dependent community. They relate to each other as they relate to who God is. This is the first example, by the way, of a little church. People gathered together with God at the centre. A little mini church. And so who are God's people? Well, they're totally dependent. They're totally dependent. And they get that they're dependent. You see, we are always dependent creatures. Somewhere in the Bible it says, Know that the Lord is God. It is he that made us and we are his. You try to live this life without a realisation that you depend on him for your image. That he is the one we're supposed to turn to and worship. That he is the one who makes sense of our lives as believers. That he is the one who knits us together and makes us to relate to one another. If you forget that, then stuff falls apart. So to realise that we are created by God and are both owned by him and dependent upon him for everything is the truth. But it's hard to swallow, isn't it? It strikes at the core of our illusions of our independence and our self-importance. No, we're made to depend on God for everything. That's God's uh, place, that's God's people. These ones are much quicker. God's sharing out God's blessing. See that turnover? And we, we're just going to look at, at Genesis 2, 1 to, thir- 1 to 3. And this is day 7. And this is what it says. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had, he had been doing. So he... Sorry, I'll start reading that again. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested and all the work of creating that he had done. What's missing from that day that's in all the other days? Evening and morning, the eighth day. Now that isn't an accident. That's not an accident. It's not that the author of Genesis forgot. It's the whole point. The point is, this Sabbath day, this last day, this seventh day, is the high point of creation where endless enjoyment of relationship with God never ends. That's what we were made for, to sit under his blessing and rule, enjoying his bounty and his grace. Rest. Oh, I need that, don't you? 
rest from the worry and the fear and the calamity and the busyness and the worn outness. God puts his stamp of approval on this last day and says, this is what you were made for, to sit under my blessing and rule at rest. It's a picture of harmony. It's a picture of peace. It's a picture of God and his people with no worries, not afraid, safe and secure. I was trying to think of an example of this, and the, the best I came up with was that... Have you, who here ever used to watch the, the, the um, sitcom Cheers? Do you remember watching Cheers? No? You've never watched it? Do you remember the theme tune that goes, and it starts with a piano, and it's got... An, um, you want to go where everybody knows your name. It talks about how life's really tiring and where you're going. You want to go where everybody knows your name. And it's just that music and the pictures behind of people standing together and everything's calm and harmony. It's just like, yeah, I want that. That's what we've got here. Everything is just right, unspoiled, totally satisfied. They want for nothing. They're under his authority, verse 16 and 17. And the Lord commanded them, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. You've got everything you want. But you must not eat from that tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you'll surely die. So he rules. He's king. But they've got everything they want. And that is sharing out God's blessing one with another. Letting God be God and getting on with imaging, worshipping, relating to him and believing him. And that's his kingdom. God's people in God's place sharing out God's blessing and rule. And that is the answer to the question. What is the question? What's the meaning of life? Why are we here? What's it all about? Answer? To know know God and be in his kingdom. That's why we're here and that's what life is all about. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 are telling us. I've got to cut this really short, but let's have a look at God's kingdom style quickly before I finish. Uh, Mark asked me about this. He said, why have you got a picture of a Game Boy there? What is it? It's not a Game Boy. What is it, the picture? A controller. That's what it means when God is described as sovereign. Everything is under him and he can pull the levers and nothing is outside of him. He is totally able to deliver on his promises. Nothing can confound him. He has total authority. Nothing can throw him off his game. So he is not anything like, you know, there's those ancient Greek mythologies where you've got warring gods who are trying to, like, get the people to do what they want to do and it's all a bit of a fight and, you know, he's a bit messed up and they're arguing. The gods are sort of needy and struggling. Now, there's no struggle in this kingdom creation. He's overall and nothing gets in his way. He doesn't have to negotiate or uh, call a committee meeting. I love that back in chapter 1 where it um, it talks about the creation of the light on day 4. And this was written into an age where you know, the people viewed that the creation was made by several competing deities and somebody looked after the sea and one deity looked after the, the, the sky and one looked after the trees and all of that. And the biggest deity was the one who, who sort of held the stars together. And there's a little throwaway line in chapter 1 where it talks about how God, oh, and he also made the stars. He did everything. It's all his. He's sovereign over everything. And aren't you relieved? You see, we might not be able to make sense of things that happen to us day by day, but that isn't his problem. He knows. He can affect change. He can do whatever he pleases. He can affect change and bring bring grace. Isn't that a comfort to you? That if God makes you a promise, he can fulfil it. Nothing can stop him. He's sovereign. 
But do you see there the next one? They're the, the bringing two jigsaw pieces together, making it fit, making it all bringing it together, making it work. And that's the Bible theme of wisdom. So what do you think of when you think of a sage who's sitting there, you know, I don't know, a Yoda, and you say, speak some words of wisdom. What's the words of wisdom about? They're like, hungry eyes, or whatever he says. It's always like, you know, I'd, I could words elude me now, but it's always somewhere they're trying to make sense of a messy mixed up bits of pieces and you want to try and bring it all together, that's wisdom or else wisdom, you need to choose who you're going to go to, you've got a choice of the wisdom of being able to bring a kitchen unit together Okay, who are you going to go to? Alan or Nathan? Who's got wisdom when it comes to kitchen units? Alan God is the all wise God, in other words He can see how to bring stuff together and make it work. Now, I struggle to figure out my to-do list. Oh, if I do that, I won't be able to do it. I'm like, oh, my head's hurting. He doesn't have that problem. He's the all-wise God who brings stuff together. He puts it together to work a certain way. And this world has been put together to work a certain way. And if you kick against his way of bringing it together, what it's like, it's like fabric, and you put it under tension. And you'll undermine the fabric of life until you get a tear. And some of you are carrying tears, aren't you? Because you've tried to live in the wise God's world without reference to the wise God who's put it together in a certain way. And fault lines are appearing. And so that's why we always want to listen to God's way of putting stuff together first. That's why it breaks my heart sometimes when I sit down with some of you or I sit down and talk to myself and go hold on, you've been going this way, which is not according to what God would have you do. And I start to shudder because I think, the tears, they're there. I can see them and then they're going to get deeper. You know, sin isn't just breaking the rules. Sin is putting a tear in your life that seems to run amok everywhere. That's why, grab hold of his word and read it. So he's the wise God. Here he brings people together. He brings um, people together. He brings him to people. He brings people and, he, and the world together. He brings it all together. And we were watching the other day uh, the 18. And of course, there's Hannibal Smith. And what does Hannibal Smith always say? I love it when a plan comes together. God is the one who can make a plan come together. Next one. His glory. Now, everybody hates a show-off. But his kingdom style is to work for his glory, which isn't bad, because he's not a show-off, because the more you see his glory, the more it will meet your needs. Now, he's always acting for his glory, because that's the best thing for us, and it's the best thing for him. So I was trying to write this down in a way, I want you to get these two things together, okay? These two things are always together in the Bible. God is glorified by our depending on him, saying, you're all I need. So God gets glory that way. But at the same time, we are most satisfied, most fulfilled, most human by trusting in his provision that he can do it. It, The two things work together. Do you get that? So if you can't see the glory of God, you're going to be unfulfilled. Because you'll go to something else and and you'll try and find a fake glory in something else. But the more you hold up him, the more you'll be satisfied. Now, I made a mistake, I'm sure Jane won't mind me telling you this. For a long time, I like trying to encourage my wife, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. And she, 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 she knew she had to read a Bible, and it's hard to do that. But we've changed the terminology from when we were looking at the Together on a Mission. So nowadays, I don't say, remember to read your Bible, I say. 
remember there's fullness in Jesus. And that kicks off and goes, oh yeah! I, reading my Bible isn't like a, a labour or a rule to follow to keep in with God. It's actually seeing my needs met. It's saying Jesus Christ is all I need. I will be most satisfied when I, I find fullness in him. So of course I want to go and hear what he's got to say to me today. You see how that works? So he always works for his glory and we are always most satisfied when we're most going like that fella. <laughs> he's great! You see that there? What about the last one? Here we go. Grace. Now there's only hints of it here. But it is amazing. And we're going to see more. All of this creation came at his expense. People didn't put a down payment or a deposit on God doing this. It was all from him. And you need to know this. This is really important because we're not made out of necessity. God didn't make us because he, need, he was needy or because he was bored or because he was incomplete or because he was lacking. Some, even sometimes in Bible churches they'll say, so why did God create us? Well, he needed to have a relationship and pour his love on somebody. No. The triune God, one God, three persons, with perfect joy, love, satisfaction, completeness within himself, he didn't need us at all. And so whatever he gives us that is good is his grace. He didn't need us to complete something that was lacking within him. He created us as an act of grace. It wasn't forced and he freely gives us that grace. That is the style of our king. He is sovereign, he is wise, he is glorious and he is gracious. And we're going to see that all the more so that we finish by saying what is the life of faith? How do we respond? Have you got a a one way? I don't mind missing a picture. Can you see the little picture? This is it. We're pointing at God, saying he's got to be the centre. So it's obvious, isn't it? How do we respond? Answer, put him centre stage. To live as if God isn't centre stage is to invite disaster. Both now, fabric torn, ripped, messy lives now, but if he's the Lord and he's sovereign, and you have to meet him one day, and you've lived as if he's not the centre, then you're in big trouble with him. Both now and then. So live as if he's at the centre. Live a life of faith means living this out, putting him at the centre. And to not do is just doesn't make sense. So what we need to do is cry out to God and say, Lord, please, help me to delight in my relationship with you. Make this world, make my life, not about me, but about you. You're the author of life. These chapters invite us to delight in God, to trust him, to put him at the centre. Remember Mark chapter 1, verse 15? The gospel of the kingdom, what are we to do? Repent and believe. Turn away from everything else that is about us and go back to him, grab a hold of him. And so what I want to ask you to do is pray. Pray, mighty king of the kingdom, graciously save me into your eternal kingdom through Jesus Christ. I renounce my own interpretations, my own ability to make sense on stuff. I realise I've tried to build my image and identity in other things, which is wrong. I have my image in you. I realise I've listened to other people's ideas. I've worshipped other stuff. I've believed other people's lies. I've related to people badly and sinned against them. Please, Lord, would you do what it takes to put me into your eternal kingdom? Because I know your Bible tells me that it will come through Jesus Christ. So that's the pattern of the kingdom. Now there will be plenty of questions. There's some possible questions written there. You know, where did it all go wrong? Why does God seem so distant? Can he be trusted? All of those things will get dealt with. But for the moment we're just going to sing and we're going to worship. We're going to sing and we're going to adore and look to him and say, wow. 
We're going to sing now about the splendour of the King. So if you're a musician, can you get up there? And this is how this song goes. It's very simple. Look at it. It's great. Click it for us if you would. Is it up? The splendour of the King, clothed in majesty. Let all the earth rejoice. Let all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light and darkness tries to hide and trembles at his voice because he's speaking God.